Okay. Uh, so, Will, are you recording? I am recording now. Perfect. Welcome to Podcast. The podcast about film adaptations and the stories that inspired them. I'm your host, Frank Meyer. And with me, as always, is the recently furloughed chief buffet critic at the New York Times, Caleb Drickey. Uh, thank you, Frank, for, for having me on. As usual, it's, it's, um, it's a salve in these troubling economic times to, uh, uh, to have such a, a lucrative position as uh, chief adaptations critic. Um, at- Podcast. Uh, and and I, I actually, um, I have, I, we, we have a guest this week uh it wasn't planned it wasn't planned he uh he uh i got stuck babysitting him for the weekend um so he's here but uh uh here he is uh he's a three-time <laughs> illinois state fish gutting champion uh my brother will Dricky. uh thank you for introducing me but uh this is a really fucked up way to reveal that um actually the only reason i agreed to come on was because uh you guys told me that i would be chief adaptation critic here so um are we gonna do a co-chief sort of thing or or um you, uh, just a fight to the death it's, yeah, it's we all just i would prefer if you were an associate adaptation critic i'll how about how about i'm vice and then when caleb uh meets his untimely demise uh falling down a flight of stairs later today um i can take over that uh yeah no that was that's good I, I would sub one Drake in for another. That's no problem. That's true. We are interchangeable. Look the same to me anyway. We are we are replaceable people. Um, but we are here today not to talk about uh, fraternal bickering. But instead of that, we're going to be talking about uh, Lawrence Stern's uh, masterpiece. I'm going to say the life and opinions of Tristram Shanty, gentlemen, and its 2005 adaptation. Uh, Tristram Shandy, A Cock and Bull Story uh, by Michael Winterbottom. Uh, so, Will, you don't really care about context very much. You're, a, you're sort of, you love text and, and what a text actually says and means and not sort of the culture that that birthed that text as much. At least that's my reading of you. And you you love Tristram Shandy. Am I correct? In, in no, Caleb, that? you're absolutely right. As a socialist, I hate context. I hate taking, <laughs> I hate taking culture into account. Uh, uh, I love I love taking people um, for their word. That's why I think that um, that's why my fucking brain dribbles out of my ears and I say that the, the Nazis were socialists. Um, you're 100% right, Caleb. I could not have put it better myself. What can um, I say? I know you really well. No, uh, what Caleb is trying to say is that um, he's he's trying to give me a pass. So I did, uh, I was assigned with uh, describing this book or sort of summarizing it. Um, and I have read it before uh, and I was rereading it for this and I f- did not finish in time. But I would like to think that that is in keeping with the themes of the book. Because basically uh, this book is, um, and if actually if I can go into some context, um, it's wild that every... No. Oh, sorry. That's just for Caleb. Caleb is... <laughs> Context invited. Context welcome. Uh, um, no, I love this book because um, I have at multiple times been tasked with reading some fucking, like, dog shit, fict- lightly fictionalized account of someone's life. Um, I I read the entirety of In Search of Lost Time by Marcel Proust for a beer. Um, 
I fucking know I'm gonna read uh, uh, My Struggle by Nausgaard. All these, there's like such a, it's such a, like a modern, a modernist aesthetic to like try to explore into the deepest reaches of your life and try to like palpate every crevice of your brain. And uh, it's just, it's just amusing to me that uh, Tristram, you know, the Lawrence Stern and Tristram Shandy uh, fucking essentially wrote a book about what a stupid fucking idea it was in like much less time uh in much fewer patient pages while he was fucking dying like 200 years before any of these jokers took a shot at it but i don't know just in general the uh the book i i I love this book um you know he 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 gets straight up like four four volumes in before he even reaches his own birth uh he spends like 200 pages like a solid it's it's not consecutive which is unfortunate but i would say probably one in three pages of this book is about dicks in some way um uh but there's a there's some there's some there's some really really good shit in here um and it gets you know it gets sentimental towards the end which again i didn't reach this time around but i mean you know textually and contextually it's about how there's just simply too much too much going on in life to uh like try to encapsulate all of it in in a single book um and this is represented uh pretty ideally i don't know if you guys like citations here uh on this podcast but (laughs) we do love a citation yeah we love a citation okay well on page 195 of the wordsworth classics edition which is bullshit gotta say fucking calling out wordsworth editions for just saying tristram shandy and not the full title the life and opinions of tristram shandy comma gentleman so don't buy this book anyway that disclaimer goes on everything that is featured on this podcast, just for the record. Just buy none of these books. Yeah, don't buy books. Yeah, anyway, so he, uh, he writes, I am this month one whole year older than I was this time 12 months, and having got, as you perceive, almost into the middle of my fourth volume, and no farther than to my first day's life, tis demonstrative that I have 364 days more life to write just now than when I'd first set out, so that instead of advancing as a common writer, on the contrary, I am just thrown so many volumes back. Was every day of my life to be as busy as the, as this? And for what reason should they be cut short? At this rate, I should just live 364 times faster than I should write. And I want to thank Lawrence Stern and Tristram Shandy for, um, again, apologizing to me for making me read. But I mean, essentially, that's the gist of it. And like, there are so many characters, and it's it's and it does this in like a much more like interesting and compelling way than like all of these like bullshit modernist works do. Like, um, and this this book actually has subtext in it. You know, like uh, his uncle Toby um, tries to cope with his his injury to his dick by like doing his best to to like recreate in miniature the battle, and like this takes over more and more of his life. You know, and like it gets to the point where he's his his friend and I propose uh, this is my theory lover Trim. Uh, the two are absolutely porking each other. Uh, his friend Corporal Trim takes uh, the local milkmaid down, and they they fall down the ditch and break a bridge in the in the model. And when rebuilding it, he, like, essentially updates the style because the style of bridge in the old time was, uh, it's no longer used in modern uh, fortifications. So these characters are, are just sort of circling the same events over and over in their life, just trying to, like, understand and encapsulate them. And the same thing with Tristram's father, who tries to write this Tristrapedia. And the same thing, he never even gets around to the important shit because he's so, you know, life is so detailed and rich that you can't you know you you, can't, you simply can't encapsulate it in in writing and so that's why i didn't read the whole thing <laughs> um no i i think that's a, a very good overview of of 
what is i i think a uh a bitterly funny novel but it i think at the heart is very gentle and i want that gentility i kind of want to talk about so lawrence stern was was not a famous novelist for most of his life he was an anglican priest until he turned 46 um when he wrote his first novel um which is called a political romance or the history of a good warm watch coat which is a uh, a satire about the petty feuds at the local level of 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 the church and and it's about the church's fight over a coat um with municipal authorities and it effectively ended his political career uh, or or his his ecclesiastical career um because his superiors in the church were so offended um that that he boxed them. Um, but he did parlay that first novel. Can discovering... I cut in? Yeah. At having failed at um, being a preach, a priest, Lawrence Stern then decided to take the only course left to him and the only course left to anybody who can't actually do anything, which is to write novels. <laughs> exactly. But, um, but again, this is at the age of, of 46, well into his life. Um, uh, and then he immediately after, um, the same year that he he published a political romance, he began work um, on uh, on Tristram Shandy and and pumped out I think the first three volumes in that first year, which was um, seventeen fifty nine. And and like Will said, and Stephen Fry in the in the film also gives a, I think a pretty good overview of of what the the novel is about, which is quote life is chaotic, it's amorphous. No matter how hard you try, you can't actually make it fit into any shape. And I think this is. Um, important in the context of Lawrence Stern's life, because again, he was a preacher in the 18th century, which was very uh, a very religiously zealous uh, time. And also, I want to talk a little bit about the state of English literature in the 18th century. And the, the two predominant genres of the time were um, this, I don't think there's an official word for it, but it's sort of a tale of rewarded virtue. Um, and I think the quintessential example is a, a 1740 novel called Pamela, or Virtue Rewarded, which is about a, a lower-class servant girl um, who must uh, constantly defend her chastity from the pretty violent advances of her of her employer. Uh, and then her... So that's, that's my college years, essentially, just <laughs> violently defending my chastity. <laughs> uh, absolutely. Um, and you've been rewarded with a podcast, mm-hmm. uh, and yeah, <laughs> all my virtue. <laughs> <laughs> so we have that, um, and and I think that so uh, Pamela was uh, it's kind of arguably the first quintessentially just hard novel um, that, and it was it was an absolute sensation in 1740, which is about 20 years before um, before Tristram Shandy. And I would say the other side of that is is uh, the picaresque novel, which is uh, sort of a, a sinner's lament. Um, it's generally the tale of someone who was given the option to live a decent life, uh, but instead chose to live in sin, and then their sort of descent usually into poverty and despair. And I, I think probably the quintessential example of that would be William Makepeace Thackeray's The Luck of Barry Lyndon, um, which was, of course, adapted into maybe my favorite film of all time, which is also about the impossibility of capturing life, uh, Stanley Kubrick's Barry Lyndon. So I, I think uh, Tristram Shandy is not just, it's not just funny, and it's not just brilliant and wise and warm in its, uh, in its treatment of, of the complexity of life. I think it's, it's also a rebuke to the sort of 
this this structural pressures that try to enforce specific ways of living. Um, Tristram, I, it should be said, is is presented as the novel is presented as a picaresque. It's Tristram trying to tell the story of how he fell from grace, um, but he that's just that's not that's not a story that that can be told because there there's too much in life and no one knows why. And again, this is coming from a priest who is supposed to be, you know, sort of the arbiter of spiritual health, who is saying that, you know, the church can't tell you how to live. No one can tell you how to live. There's too much of life, and too much of life is good and beautiful, even if it leads to sort of horrendous comedic acts. And uh, I don't want to, I just want to cut it in. I don't want to give the uh, the Church of England very much credit at all. Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, they are a sponsor of this podcast. Just so you know, <laughs> okay. we, we do have a promo from the church of England at the top. Okay. Well then I will, I will, I will, uh, edit, cut down my, my screed about, uh, how divorce should be made illegal again. Um, <laughs> no, but, uh, uh, um, uh, you know, <laughs> England, England's, you can, uh, unlike, unlike Tristram Shandy's life, you can trace England's fall from grace. Um, I think there's a direct line you can draw between Brexit and Henry VIII trying to get divorced. <laughs> um, no, but uh, uh, in addition to his, his being a priest, um, I remember reading that uh, initial drafts of this book were more straight comedic, uh, but Lawrence Stern actually started fucking dying of tuberculosis. And uh, it was that sort of diagnosis, that sort of realization that his own life was coming to an end that uh, i believe also his wife and daughter yes Um, Uh, a lot of tragedy in this man's life yeah i don't i've it's been a long time since i read this novel i'm like my my memory of specific details of it are i think pretty spotty but i i love the idea of this novel i there are moments in it um for example there's a, a famous black page which um is alluded is is referenced in the film um in which a a pretty prominent very funny character dies and then and the next page is just black ink and i think this is i think genuinely it's a brilliant and moving way to depict absence um it's not just that he disappears from the narrative it's the narrative stops entirely um and and i i think that is a beautiful depiction of death and in a novel. likewise likewise you know he disappears from the novel entirely um in that black page but he that's it's very early on in the book um so it you sort of you see tristram shandy's like grief over yorick's death before you yourself have a chance much of a chance even to know like get to know um yorick the the priest and so it is kind of you could say it's, it's kind of representative of you know it's like in the book you're left wondering what the significance of this character is and then you only get the the details of it sort of after the fact you know he says kind of relevant to you know the way we think about um life and death well i just wanted to ask about the and i think you've gotten into it some but just like the form of the book and what it feels like to to be reading it yeah well so the the structure of the novel is is that of a picaresque it's tristram shandy who is i think uh i think he's supposed to be 33 when he starts writing the novel um four years older than his father um when he was born and and he's trying to explain why it was that his life which was by all accounts supposed to be so wonderful has gone so far south i mean he loves his mother and he has a lot of affection for his father and uncle toby but he kind of sees him as vaguely pathetic 
but he, so he's he's trying to tell the story of his life and how things went so long in this classic picaresque way of you know the rogue gone astray um but he keeps getting distracted by the things that contextualize his life so he can't talk about being born without first talking about uh you know his father and and the clock um and he can't talk about his father and the clock without also talking about the time that he was circumcised and he can't talk about the time he was circumcised without talking about the fact that his nose was broken when he was born and he can't talk about the fact that his nose was broken when he was born without first talking about the way that a nose is important to establish a great and prominent man and he can't talk about that without also talking about a name so he keeps getting distracted by mostly the lives of his father his mother and his uncle toby um and their various adventures and how those adventures eventually lead to a life that's gone astray but we never actually get to that point okay <laughs> and so he's he's very he's very uh you know he's he's an urbane fellow he's very apologetic about how long it's taking for him to uh get to the point but nonetheless he keeps circling to yeah and 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 so by the time he gives up after volume 8 i think he's maybe 3 years old um he just he he just he gives up he cannot tell uh the story of his life at all and so he just stops he stops telling it so um that is the structure of the novel structure of the film is a little bit different and the architect of the structure of that film is credited as martin hardy um Martin Hardy is not a real person. Um, this is this is my one note um, on on the pre-production pre-production of this film. Uh, Martin Hardy is a, a pseudonym um, for the real writer of the screenplay, uh, who is Frank Cottrell Boyce, um, and this is Cottrell Boyce's um, seventh collaboration with director Michael Winterbottom, and it is also their last um, uh, collaboration, and. Uh, and I gotta say, I'm really glad that um, this movie was this movie script was written under a pseudonym because, um, what was the guy's name again? Uh, Frank Cottrell Boyce. Sorry, yeah, I'm really glad that this movie was written under a pseudonym because I feel like so many people would have come in expecting like a classic Frank Cottrell Boyce flick, um, and so <laughs> <laughs> you know, like just just those just those classic Frank Cottrell Boyce flourishes and um you know they, they let people go in with an open mind um i mean we are joking because of course like who who cares about frank cattrall boyce very much but i actually i actually do think this is interesting especially in the context of the film itself which i i actually i don't think the film um subscribes very closely to the idea that life is complicated i think the film thinks that life is actually pretty simple and just men and their egos are the things that that complicate it. And I do want to talk about the egos of Michael Winterbottom and Fink Cottrell Boyce because I've as I've said this is their seventh collaboration. It's their last collaboration. They never work with each other again. And uh, a, a 2005 piece. This film was nominated for a, a BAFTA, um, and specifically, quote unquote, Martin Hardy got nominated for a BAFTA for his screenplay. And so Variety did a piece about him in 2005 and describes the split between Winterbottom uh, and, and Cottrell Boyce as acrimonious. Um, um, so Michael Winterbottom, his sort of biggest hit to this point 
um, was uh, 2002's uh, 24-Hour Party People, also starring Steve Coogan, which is a biopic about a record exec. It's very fun. It's poppy, but he mostly makes um, pretty indie, underground independent films of varying quality, but always with Cottrell Boyce. And then finally, in 2005, um, Cottrell Boyce, quote, had enough of win- uh, had enough of being at Winterbottom's beck and call. Um, and uh, in the same piece, Cottrell Boyce um, criticized Winterbottom's career, and he said that, uh, quote, Tristram Shandy is the best film he's made for donkey's years. And in donkey's years, donkey, great little what a Eng- cut. <laughs> what a great little English uh, thing there. But um, uh, in 2012, um, Cottrell Boyce did an interview in The Guardian. And so this is seven years later, presumably some the bad blood had chilled out a little bit. Um, but Cottrell Boyce indicated that he thought that Winterbottom's devotion to independent filmmaking was was holding Boyce back and that uh, Boyce made um, a, a movie with with Danny Boyle, Millions, in 2004, which was um, a bigger commercial hit. And Danny Boyle is a more commercial director. Danny Boyle, who made um, Train Spotting, and um, is that the movie where the kid has to spend like a million dollars before the currency changes overnight or something? Yeah, he there's a bank. He he comes across a bank robber's hall. It's not a good um, movie, if I remember correctly. I was gonna say like bigger and better for Cottrell Boyce. Yeah, we all we all remember where uh, Cottrell Boyce, uh, his devotion to selling out, ended up. Where uh, famously credited for writing the Avengers. Oh, did he? No, Um... he went nowhere. (laughs) Like his 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 fucking claim to commercial fame was like a a C list Danny Boyle movie. (laughs) Well, but that's in two thousand four. That seemed to be like this was the bet to make him go big, and it didn't pay off. But so that's the thing is he decided to go commercial and it clearly didn't pay off. But I think that it seems to me not having talked to either of these people that that was, that was the tension between the two. Um, so, so I have two notes coming out of that story. One is so that Frank of, Cottrell. Sorry, go ahead. No, 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 go, go ahead. And then I'll, I'll, oh, I'll close out say, the pre-production uh, notes. So uh, thematically, we just figured out who the alpha brother is just for the record. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Are, so, you, are you twins? We are. Yeah. Okay, yeah, Will came out of the womb first. I did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, true true to the, the theme of this book, you know, the book's about blurring the lines between fiction and reality, and the book is fundamentally about a man trying and failing to write a book. The movie's about a group of people trying and failing to make a movie. Um, another sub-theme is the importance of names, so it's important to establish that, uh, true to his name, Michael Winterbottom just sat there and took it. um yeah so we're gonna get back to names in a sec and uh i guess i also have two notes coming out of this this feud is is one that frank cottrell voice seems like a real asshole (laughs) um and second that the overcharged male prima donna ego was very much on michael winterbottom's brain as he was making this movie about steven steve coogan's overcharged ego that's all I have for the film. I think now we can sort of get into the main thrust of it. Yeah, so it opens with uh, Rob Brydon and Steve Coogan sitting in their makeup trailer, getting ready to start filming a cock and bull story, The Life and Times of Tristram Shandy. And uh, they it's their it's their banter, which I, I've only seen clips of them in the trip. I'm, I, I'm going in pretty cold to this winter bottom. So, but I understand this is kind of like the crux of their comedy together is like, this kind of 
nagging and sort of this like nagging kind of witty repartee that is ultimately like about nothing and is mostly just like fragile male egos just kind of going at it with each other and then we launch into the movie uh and this is going to get tricky to explain because there's the movie and then there's the movie of the movie and then there's the movie of the movie, of the movie. yeah yeah i mean i think one thing that's really interesting about it is um it's just interesting the way that life seems to mirror art because as you know i'm not english um confession uh, I don't know. I know Steve Coogan's main thing is Ellen Partridge, and that's like Steve Coogan presumably was famous for things before this. But um, at least according, as far as the work of his that's gone across the pond, Steve Coogan is pretty much only known for playing Steve Coogan and stuff, like in this and in the Trip movies. Um, you tell me, you missed uh, Around the World in Eighty Days with him <laughs> and Jackie Chan. <laughs> I have seen fuck, that movie. Fuck, you're right. <laughs> who's, the, who's the female lead in that? It's someone just like comically out of Steve Coogan's league in that movie. I'm just, I'm gonna I'm gonna say my my brain says Rachel Weiss, which I is wrong, but that's what my brain is gonna say. But anyway, uh, while you're looking this up, I, what I think is really interesting is like the relationship between Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon really does mirror the relationship between um, Tristram Shandy's father and Toby, where Tristram Shandy's father is constantly needling Toby. Um, for for all of the very legitimately dumb shit that he does, but then underneath it all, in a way that it is largely unexpressed, there is a real warmth uh, and a, an actual genuine friendship, which I guess in Steve Coogan's filmography maybe is left a little bit more implied. Because so I I have the uh, I have the intel here. It's Cecily de France, who is a a French actress. Uh, oh really? The woman so named Cecily I, I... of France is French. French is of France. <laughs> I'm just saying, Caleb. We should not write off maybe doing an episode on this movie. Um, I would totally do it. Arnold Schwarzenegger is in it. Uh, Kathy Bla- Bates plays Queen Victoria. Jim Broadbent, Sammo Hung, Will Fort. This is Maggie Q. Let's okay. Let's. This is an insanely stacked movie. Let's let's. <laughs> yeah. We should do a mini series on 18th century science fiction travel stuff. 40,000 leagues under the sea. You guys you guys can oh, you guys are Sean not Connery. you guys are not fucking allowed to pull a Tristram Shandy and get distracted by all the different <laughs> podcasts you want to do in the middle of we this can, podcast. We can edit, okay? Um <laughs> But then we go into the film which is already playing with uh with the conventions and tropes by having Steve Coogan's character of Tristram Shandy narrate his own movie as it's going and do a lot of like breaking the fourth wall. Although this movie's gonna break the sixth and seventh wall by the end of it, um, and explaining that like this is the story of my life, but first I need to like be born, and then basically doing the Tristram Shandy routine and, of going back and introducing his family members and his and uncle. Here is where I will say is the as far as I can tell the well, I mean there are a lot of ways that the movie obviously diverts from the book, but um, the main one that the movie does in this opening scene is it actually changes the story of his birth, um, and in a way that I didn't realize when I first read the book. Um, in the book, uh, it talks about the, uh, the scheduling of, of his clock, of his father winding the clock and, uh, fucking his mom, um, as proof that, uh, actually he, uh, his father was cucked and Tristram Shandy is not his father's son. Um, cause it says, you know, he winds the, he wound the clock the first of every month and also had sex with his mom, but on the first of that month, he was out of town. Okay, interesting. Um, I'm, I think I'm glad that they don't do that because 
it seems like Tristram Shandy and it's like a recurring bit throughout the movie that everyone has their own read of like what the movie is really about and like what's the most important part to grab onto from it. But definitely for Coogan and Winterbottom, it seems to be fatherhood and like your relationship with your son is the most important part of the book for either of them. And I don't know how much it would have upset it to have Coogan's son not be Coogan's son within the movie. Yeah. So I love, I, I, I just like the first 20 minutes after that first dressing room scene is, is just Christian Shandy talking about his birth. And it, it seems to be pulled straight from the film within the film. And I actually say, this is a, this is a good film. It's really funny. I love the, um, the soundtrack uh that we have this film doesn't have an original score it was mostly pulled from other period pieces and often other sort of self-referential film movies so there are there's um uh songs pulled from uh fellini's eight and a half and amarcord um also striking to me uh the sort of main orchestral theme uh from barry linden um appears several times and also the draftsman's contract which is another late 80s British period piece. But I think it repurposes these uh, these orchestral pieces so well. I think this, these 20 minutes, despite being circular and uh, and just loaded with gags, the, it, it feels so propulsive because it's the same sort of, It's I think it's just a violin and a bassoon kind of uh, dueling in kind of a march. I don't know. I love this sequence. It's so funny. Um, and it's, I think this is, this is the first indication that, that this film is going to be about men and about their relationships with overcomplicating their lives and with fatherhood, because we, we see the, the, the scenes are split between the women who are actually doing the work of giving birth and the men who are sitting around a dressing room looking at maps of 20 year old battles and complaining about how hard it is to uh, be waiting for a baby. The birthing sequence and the men downstairs is, is kind of an incredible run with, um, you've got uh, the incredible Shirley Henderson as like her maid that, that's moaning Myrtle in the hair. She's well. so good in this. Just an like, unbelievable voice. Like, yes. How does this person exist? <laughs> um, She's so squeaky. Yeah. Uh, and, and upstairs you have like, this like gruesome kind of like loud and really painful birth going on between the midwives and, 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 uh, and Tristram's mom and downstairs it's Tristram's dad, who is also played by Steve Coogan arguing about like forceps and the latest medical technology. And the, when they experiment with the forceps as a way to pull a baby out and it like, they're like, oh, well, we need, like, a melon. Like, a melon is, like, the correct analog, and it just fucking blows up. And this is another missed dick joke in the movie, but in the book, um, Dylan Moran, you know, they, like, talks about, like, oh, man, uh, like, this for these forceps can really fuck up a baby's head. Um, and Dylan Moran's like, you think that's bad? Just wait if the baby presents at the hip. And then they all turn. <laughs> and basically everyone turns and stops and looks at the camera and is like, it could rip his dick off. Uh, and like later, later, and like, like you know, but it's like 18th century, so it's just implied. And and so like, uh, you know, when when the baby's actually born, and Dylan Moran, you know, fucking fucks up his nose with the forceps, and his father's like totally fucking like 
brutalized by this you know the you know the book spends an entire like straight up like basically an entire book talking about how important it is to have such a like a big dick nose the 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 chapter of like the birth basically ends with his uncle toby says like well it could be worse uh he could have presented at the hip which is like (laughs) (laughs) such incredible foreshadowing because uncle toby is a is a is a is a dickless war vet (laughs) well yeah and also later on tristram shandy himself is circumcised by a window which happens in the movie before he's born, which is part of the whole, the flashing forward and back, which I think is why the propulsiveness works, is that it lays down enough placeholders in the movie in this first third here to know that you are going to reach the birth at some point. So when he can go back and be like, but in the future, I'm going to get circumcised, but also I had my nose and, and here's how I got my name. You still know that there's some intended ending point you're going to get to somewhere. A lot like, uh, I think, City of God has kind of a similar magic trick it pulls often of starting a story and then laying down like three different anecdotes and scenes and then doubling back on itself oh, to get to the I was going to say, this is, also, the this is also the um, this is the best part of every heist movie. When they get their dick chopped off in a window <laughs> Yeah. Or... <laughs> no, I mean, you know, like the, the, the sort of like parallel, like, you know, like, like sort of nonlinear storytelling. So, so we get we we get the birth. Um, where we cut to the battle. Oh yes, which it it almost seems like a, see, uh, seems like a pointless endeavor to try to talk about this movie in a chronological order. I mean, we have there's no other way to talk about it. We have to because actually I actually do think it's it's fairly chronological. There are there's three big chunks to talk about. It's but, just I mean the, the structure is essentially just escalating nesting dolls of yeah. you're further and further outside of the story. But uh uh so this is the the direct the the part of the film that is a direct adaptation of the novel. We are cutting between various scenes that don't quite connect but also are completely absolutely connect to Tristram's life, because everything connects to Tristram's life. Um, uh, so yes, we see Toby getting castrated by a cannonball, um, and then and then we see uh, his own circumcision via windowsill. And I think this is this is the the one moment where we see the the film within the film, or not the one moment, but we see a moment where the film within the film is 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 adapting the story to fit a new medium, which is film, in which Steve Coogan is commenting on the performance of the child actor. Uh, who has been circumcised and 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 says that the thesis of of Kubrick's Barry Lyndon, which is that there is no way to capture in art sort of the visceral experiences of life. The child cannot express the pain and shock of losing one's foreskin or of, of losing Steve Coogan's foreskin because he has not lived that experience and cannot truly express it. And I, so again, like we're talking about the act of adaptation and here we have a depiction of adaptation and i actually think is a smart oh I, I think it's also yeah. i think also as is as a move it's also really brilliant because as we see later on in the movie steve coogan's like supposedly better more honest reaction to having his dick cut off is something that he meticulously practiced when he was rehearsing the hot acorn in the trousers scene absolutely i think the first this this 20 minute sequence is brilliant so so we cut from the the loss of 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 the various phalluses. Well, the doctor pulls him out with the forceps and clips his nose and, and sort of, in the Tristram Shandy timeline, sort of dooms him for the rest of his life. We should talk about the naming, maybe? Yeah, let's let's talk about names, because this is, this is something that occurs in the novel. Walter Shandy, which is Tristram's father, uh, also played by Steve Coogan, 
is obsessed with Trismegistus Icarus. What's uh, do you remember the, his name? I think they they just refer to him as Trismegistus. Trismegistus, but he's a. I don't think he was a real historical figure, but was in Walter's eyes the greatest philosopher who ever lived. Um, and it's much like it is important to have a prominent nose. It's important to have a prominent name. To have a common name is to become common, and Trismegistus is the least common and therefore best name uh, that there can be. And, of course, this is butchered by a maid who... I fucking love the insult, a leaky vessel, by the way. I gotta start calling people that in real life. (laughs) It's, again, Shirley Henderson in a performance within a performance. It's fucking great. She's so good in this movie. But... Um, I want to talk about names a little bit. Um, Will, your name is uh, is just Will. It's not William. And I this is important to note because uh, our grandfather, um, our paternal grandfather, is William Drickey. Um, May he rot in hell. Will, yeah, at, genuinely. Uh, and I'm going to tell you a little story about him. He was a very bad guy. Um, okay. But so uh, I don't, actually don't know if, if our father has told you this story, Will. But um, when he was a kid, uh, he and his four siblings and his father were in a pretty horrific car accident. This is the first I'm hearing of this. Yeah, they I, I, all of the kids were pretty were, were were pretty badly injured and and were kind of touch and go for a while. And this is like this is our father's first brush with mortality. And um, I I just learned the story like a year ago, and um, he was telling me that. You know, for years afterwards, including after his father left, abandoned the family and, and moved to Florida, it was it was widely assumed and talked about openly that this car crash was William Drickey's uh, attempt to murder his own kids um, and Christ. and sort of rid himself of the burden of this family. So my question to you, Will, is... Uh, if your How name... could you live in a world without <laughs> podcast? <laughs> if your name had been William instead of Will, do you think you would spend your Thursdays uh, catapulting hand grenades at uh, school buses? Uh, well, so so what this is this is I mean it is it is one of those things because um, I don't know if you've heard this story. I only discovered it when like straight up a friend researched our family tree for us. Um, but William Drickey at one point got run out of a, like a town in California for faking his own kidnapping uh, and robbery to get away with stealing like something like six hundred bucks in like life insurance like money that like he Whoa. was like a traveling salesman for. Um, Is he still alive? Like he's no, got to be a guest on this podcast. <laughs> Damn it! He died like two years ago. But uh, so no, I think um, no, but like, another I'm, lesson is is that William Drickey is uh, Tristram Shandy. Yeah. He is the rake. Um, no, and it, it's it's wild because it's such like a one. It's such a fucking relic of its time because like, uh, yeah, he was caught when the like, like basically the gas station worker who he like basically claimed, oh, I was pulling up into this gas station and these people like ran up to my car and kidnapped me and like all that stuff. And this like the police talked to the guy who was there. He's like, no, this guy was alone. Like he was like, no, he was like very obviously not kidnapped. Um. And, uh, I think, you know, I, my parents did their best to separate me from the, the legacy of our deadbeat grandfather by naming me Will and not William, but much like my kind of namesake, I too am cursed to run just stupid low-level grifts in my life. Anyway, so I fully expect okay. to be run out of Los Angeles 
by the police, uh, much like my grandfather was. <laughs> Just like, right. like, that's the thing is, like, back then, it's fucking wild. Like, if you were white, uh, you did a crime, a cops were just like, just, just like bother someone else. Just leave. <laughs> just be someone else's problem. Uh, also, uh, uh, my parents did, however, curse me in a to a life of misery in a different way. You know, like I very conscientiously avoided naming me after my uh, deadbeat grandfather. But somehow, after one kid, they ran out of ideas for middle names and were like, "Oh fuck, what do we call him?" I know. Garrett after Garrett's popcorn, a Chicago, a Chicago like popcorn chain, like not even not even the famous Chicago popcorn chain, but like just the the the, the B list one. My siblings and I are all named after like U.S. presidents and uh, president adjacent people. We are Franklin, Theodore, and Martha. And and you've you've clearly lived up to their expectations by yeah, starting lived a film. <laughs> 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 um, do we have anything more to talk about in this in this first this first? I, I think I think sequence? we're into the we're out of the first nesting egg and Great. into the second one. Yeah, I would just like to add that if the uh, if the founding fathers were alive today, they would be podcasters. Yeah, they would be on Alex Jones, probably. To be <laughs> honest, like no, I think I think Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson would have rival podcasts. Uh, much like the like the Chapo Trap House Pod Save America. This view. is like the worst fucking timeline imaginable. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, who's Red Scare? Oh man, um, uh, Lafayette. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> totally Lafayette. Yeah. Um. Anyway. Um. So we uh, we call cut on the first on the first film sequence, and we and now we we. We're no longer following uh, Tristram and Walter Shandy. We're following Steve Coogan. Uh, what's uh, what's Steve Coogan like? I, you know, I I love Steve Coogan. I think he's he plays insecurity maybe better than like anyone possibly. As that's definitely his comedic persona is. It's it's almost like he's sort of he's weaponized his own insecurity and is always using it to kind of grift people into doing just like shame sort of debasing themselves to make him feel a little bit better <laughs> his big the big one he's working on in this is he he wants a, a a different pair of shoes so that he is slightly taller than rob brydon in every scene they have together this is truly an astounding bit um the the level of petty pettiness towards him but also the casual cruelty he displays towards uh the costume designer um yeah <laughs> who has to then <laughs> remake their shoes by hand <laughs> like he's so good at whatever another actor is like i mean we can do it but it's gonna be a lot of work and he's like all right great sounds good like he's so good at just like rejecting when everyone is like desperately politely trying to get him to say no uh it's the second best uh steven coogan is steve coogan is a piece of shit bit the best one is in the first trip movie uh when he has a dream sequence where a guy accosts him in the street with a newspaper, uh, and the headline is Stephen Co- Steve Coogan, a bit of a cunt, says Dad. <laughs> um, yeah, and and we have another dream sequence in this one about again about ego, but we'll get to that in a little bit. Um, I think the other things to note: this is uh, we meet we meet assistant Jenny for the first time, Naomi Harris. Naomi Harris again. This cast is just loaded. Um, yeah, she's great in it as the smartest person on set, perhaps the only one who has actually read 
Tristram Shandy and has seen a foreign language film. Mm-hmm. But she is Steve's assistant, and they have had a flirtatious relationship, perhaps an overtly sexual one. It's it's left a little undetermined for most of the film. Um, but I I think is this where we get the dueling coffee orders of between Rob and mm-hmm. and Steve as they ask Jenny for coffee. I think this is a, another little a beautiful way of sort of portraying this ego is is uh steve asks for a coffee but then rob asks for a fancier coffee and so steve <laughs> yes, also... a macchiato and so he doubles back and also <laughs> wants a macchiato <laughs> and again this is this again this sort of like casual cruelty and complication for other people that that this ego engenders um is that jenny now must find two fancy coffees uh and also we meet a uh, real jenny for the first time um andy mcdowell uh playing uh steve coogan's uh is it andy mcdowell what is her name it's kelly mcdonald kelly mcdonald wow just uh Um, coming out of the gun with some serious anti-irish racism coming out of the gun um she's scottish will um (laughs) sorry anyway playing uh steve coogan's live-in girlfriend and the mother of his neglected child um she's great in this film she is so sweet and so tired uh and engenders such pity from everyone around her um i don't know um she has also read the book we learned later on she's the only other person it seems to well again it's kind of there's always a maybe like one more person than one more person who's read it until you realize that steve coogan of everyone the man playing Tristram Shandy definitely loathes the least about Tristram Shandy of anyone in the movie. Well, I mean, yes, yeah, absolutely. it's like definitely sort of established through his character. I mean, like, you know, uh, while Tristram and Walter Shandy care deeply about, like, you know, being a good parent and doing the right thing, whereas Steve Coogan very much does not. I don't know. I think Steve Coogan is, I, th- I think he does want to be a good dad in this movie. And it's sort of maybe my favorite stretch of it is the balance between the kind of the witty like repartee and cynicism and then these like brief but like very private like very touching heartfelt moments of him realizing that like his his girlfriend and his kid are really what's the most important thing to him and and and, and connecting with that even as he's failing to uh give that impression to the rest of the world no i i agree with that i think the the two most touching films in the quote-unquote real world are when he changes uh his his child's diaper and then when he uh uh greets uh, a baby stand-in who's going to be playing baby tristram and has mm-hmm. has a moment and i think these are generally sweet moments and i yes i think frank you're spot on that steve coogan's performance is all about um insecurity but underneath that insecurity you always there's always a vulnerability to steve yeah. coogan he's a total bastard, but that bastardy is not out of any sort of sadism. Um, but uh, it's just small. Like he's just a small person, you know. That's Steve Coogan's role always. I think is to just be. Yes, he's just a small man. And but but beneath that is is there is a desire to to be good and to be respected, but uh, that manifests itself through just the acts of incompetence and 
uh, mm-hmm. awfulness. Yeah, so I we there's two, kind of two big things like conflicts they're trying to solve in the behind the scenes of the movie, which is they want to fund this war scene that they need to do to cover that aspect of the novel, and Steve Coogan wants to do a reshoot where he is present at Tristram's birth. He wants to change the novel to give himself this sort of fatherly moment in the artwork. Yes. Yeah, and I I would say I love the uh, the the first conflict of the uh, the battle scene because it manages to be like a genuine like really great sort of thematic adaptation of the novel itself, where Toby's obsession with recreating the battle where he was injured sort of like takes over his life, um, and like you know the the producers of the film are obsessed with with making this battle scene, and they're like you know they to the point where they do it multiple times, and it's like it completely, completely, like, sidetracks and almost ruins the rest of the movie. Um, and that, I love it also because it happens to be, like, a great indictment of actually, like, the, pri- you know, like, much like how um, Steve Coogan talks about the quality of the child actor, um, it is adapting the sort of Tristram's failure to write the novel into, like, the more, the, the language of film and sort of talk about their failure to create make a movie. Yeah, you've got uh, you got Mark Williams as the uh, historian consultant who's brought on set. Uh, <laughs> He's great. This is me in the movie, basically, <laughs> the one who's just like, yeah, wrong hat, you gotta go off, like, it's just, like, so fucking sidelined to disrespect, like, nobody gives a shit about what's <laughs> on. Um, no, and I, I want to agree with Will here, again, this is, um, this is a, a great way of sort of, uh, moving the central conceit of the novel into a new medium, um, but I, I think also, uh, again, I think this film is mostly about ego and the way that ego complicates simple relationships. Um, this is a, we we see in the first twenty minutes that this is a good adaptation. It moves very quickly and the performances are great. Um, but again, it's ego that demands that there is a battle scene. Everyone who has read the book concurs that the battle is completely unimportant. It doesn't matter. It's there purely as background for Toby, who is a secondary character. But the director needs a great battle because it's big and it's complicated and big battles are what get. And they bring up Mel Gibson a lot. Like That's what gets Mel Gibson the Oscar is the battle scene in Braveheart. Um, yeah. And so it's, again, you have something that is simple and that's working. I mean, it's not simple. This is a very complex adaptation to be sure. But uh, the desire to introduce something complicated for purely sort of big male auteur you know big dick reasons that is the central and it, and there's two of them one is to uh to force the man into the women's scene which is the birth and the other to introduce a battle like the the ultimate masculine ego trip into a movie that is very much not about battles anyway i think the problem with the film is on every level, just ego. And but I think it's interesting the way that the film also consistently has its ego and uh, or has its cake and eats it too, uh, because like in the scenes where they actually do talk about Uncle Toby's injury and like how you know he's too modest to even mention his his like groin injury to his doctor, um, like you can tell there's a budget there. They spent money on like like yeah. the extras and like the background to make it look legit, and you know they could have easily like skimped out on it. Um, and like made it look shitty and been like, oh, it's part of the bit, uh, but they didn't. No, I agree. It's it. 
the fake movie is a well-made movie. <laughs> it's great. I, it's something to note, I think, is that the way the movie works changes in the second nesting doll when it's on set, and that it's totally linear. It's a lot more like handheld mm-hmm. cameras that are just following Coogan around, basically. It reminded me a lot of, I would say, Birdman in its kind of style. It's um, it's this like, stream of conscious sequences about just the making of the movie and these weird kind of cyclical bickering arguments about how to get the funding for this or how to get the funding for that. It is fun to see an, intri- an ingredient get introduced in one start of the stream of consciousness and then, you know, an hour later, it like resurfaces again, coming out of someone else's mouth as like a good idea on what to implement in the movie. The Widow Wardley being kind of the key <gasps> the one. The Widow Wadman! Is, uh, Widow Wadman? <laughs> <laughs> Gotta get the names um, right. Is she as important in the book as, as Naomi Harris kind of talks her up to be? Oh, no, not as the uh, as the interviewer does. They, a say? great deal of the back half of the book takes is about Toby's relationship with the Widow Wadman. But I, I don't think it's sort of the best remembered or best loved. I think, it, again, it's, I mean, it is also, it happens later, like it happens towards the end of the book. And I feel like a lot of people, um, it's just one of those, you know, like in, in these stream of consciousness books like this, people only ever remember like the stuff that happens in chapter one. So uh, should we talk, let's talk a little bit about the hotel and the viewing party and Steve uh steve coogan's girlfriend and baby up on the top floor because i actually do i do think this is a really a, a clever um device um af- after filming wraps for the day we have i believe every, the entire film is taking place in uh like a, a country villa that's been repurposed as a hotel but is also housing the shoot i mean they just this is just like england they just have a bunch of these old manners and they just like they will just straight up give you money if you like ask to film a movie there essentially yeah um but so i i do think like on on the in the basement there's a screening room and then one floor above there's sort of there's the lobby where everyone is drinking and mingling and then above that there is sort of the family and it's serious one room is rob brighton's room and sort of the prospect of friendship and 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 the other is is his girlfriend and his baby and i, I do think that sort of the layering of professional la- relation professional and platonic and romantic relationships on top of each other that way is is a pretty clever a pretty clever device to portray what what steve coogan wants his relationship to all of those things to be but he keeps getting pulled down in into the muck of of the usually by his own efforts he keeps getting yeah. pulled away um, because he's complicating his professional relationships by uh, making obscene demands from costume designers and complicating funding issues and, and things like that. Well, I think, um, if anything, and it's almost kind of tragic, like by the end of the movie, you realize that like for as, as self-important as Steve Coogan is, like with the talks about like Widow Wadman, like bringing in Jillian Anderson and like the, the funding of the battle scene, like he is like... Uh, like he essentially becomes like of tertiary importance in his own movie by his own hand too because he insists on this because he hasn't read the book and insists on this female character which he assumes is going to be his love interest <laughs> and is not it's for rob bread and his nemesis <laughs> this movie moves so quickly and so well and introduce and that this conflict of of the widow wadman is introduced and and settled in 10 minutes yeah. Uh he's introduced to the concept by his assistant Jenny, 
who says it's the stupidest part of of the book uh and then he brings it up at a production meeting and then goes to see his wife and then five minutes later is ambushed by rob bryden who thanks him so much for elevating him to uh lead role uh and then we learn that gillian anderson of x-files fame has joined the cast this feels like in another film this would be the crux of the conflict is the bringing in of a second star to replace the first and it's introduced and settled in 15 seconds and it doesn't feel rushed at all i think this is brilliant well because the movie has started to become kind of like the movie they're making of tristram shandy has started to become a little less and less important as you get more invested in steve coogan and him trying to figure out who he wants to be like where his career is going and like if he has it in him to be a good father, essentially. And I think the, the, the filmmakers correctly realized that the, the sort of storyline of like, oh man, it sure sucks when a girl gets between two bros. Uh, like, it's just played <laughs> yeah. out and tired. Agreed. Um, Gillian Anderson, she's in this movie for about four minutes, and I think she's great. But uh, That's all really all you need to say. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. Um, shout out to her. Yeah, she has a great, she's great a British great accent. She lives in England. She is She's British. Really, because they uh, give her an American accent as, like, the actress. She is born, she was, I think, born in the U.S., but now splits time between the U.S. and Britain and is, like, a British citizen. All right, all right, like, Frank, cut this part out where I'm being just a fucking idiot. <laughs> <laughs> nah, we needed something. I mean, you've, you've referenced Proust enough times you need to bring me down here. <laughs> at some point. We've, I think, kind of talked about it a little bit, but Steve changing his baby's diaper. And I think this is the one moment of... The, yeah. the, the first moment of real vulnerability for him. Um, I don't know about you. I'd seen this film before, but I didn't remember the scene. And I thought it was going to play much differently than it did. I thought it would be sort of a mirror of the birth scene in which the men were too squeamish and too uh, fragile to actually deal with the gross problems of fatherhood. But in this case, he changes a diaper and he does it well and sings his baby to sleep and yeah i don't know this is a sweet scene no i love it i mean and i think that the the crux of this like nesting egg portion of the story is that i think there are some things that you can't be totally uh like postmodern and cynical about is what it's getting at that when steve coogan when naomi harris approaches him and says that i want to sleep with you and steve coogan is like no like i have a life and i need to be a part of it or when he's changing his son's diaper, or even when he's putting on the pantomime of dropping a hot chestnut in his pants until he does drop the hot chestnut in his pants, actually burning himself. It's like, I, I know that Tristram Shandy, the whole point is that you can't kind of, it's it's making a mockery that uh, it's, I don't know if it's a cynical book. Cause, but it's, it's not. It's not a cynical. I, it's extremely humanistic. And yeah. I think I think this middle, this middle part of the film, uh, where it talks about the creation of the film, manages to sort of, compile into one sort of section um a part of the book that's very scattered and diverse where like these like th- these parts of the book sort of exist a lot as asides where he like talks about the the writing process and like he'll interrupt uh, the story whereas the movie just sort of puts slams all that part of the book together into one section and i think it does the same thing with the moments of like real tenderness that are scattered throughout the book as well yeah i think it's really touching it's really wonderful and i love this I love this movie being at war with like how how quippy it can be over human life and then how just like resonant and touching it can also be at the same time. I, I really love that tension this in this stretch of the movie. 
probably my favorite aspect of the whole thing. Yeah, it really achieves like a level of naturalism that you don't see in a lot of movies, especially ones that are as obsessed with being so sort of like contrived and like arty as this one is. Yeah, and movies about making movies, I think, are so often about how how phony everything is and how like little all of it matters and it's all just artifice on artifice. And this is a movie where formally it's artifice on artifice, but it's also uh, the emotional beats are just super authentic. You can make a movie about how shitty the film, like the t- film system is, like the, the filmmaking process is, without just like talking about how everyone's a piece of shit. Yeah, but I don't think I mean Tristan Shandy is the cock and bull story is not. I don't think it defends anyone in the film industry. It just insists that like all humans are like have some decency mm-hmm. to them or like still have like a life worth being introspective about basically. I th- I think this is this this is a depiction of this the simplicity of of decent life and actually how easy it is to to be good. Um if again my reading of this film is is all about how uh, self-regard mucks up the works of what should be straightforward and good and simple and, and etc. Um, and this is sort of, this is the moment where you, we see how actually, how easy it is for Steve Coogan to foster a relationship with his son and, you know, be kind, uh, to his, uh, to his colleagues and to his, his girlfriend, uh, it's not difficult to do. Life isn't actually, in fact, all that complicated. It's people that are complicated, and it's people that that muck it all up. And and th- I think that's something that's kind of easy to overstate and and to come across as saccharine. It's easy to to do. Uh, you know, it's a wonderful life. Uh, a little bit where that can ring hollow, but I I think having seen Steve Coogan at his catty worst, giving him this moment of, uh, of warmth and decency actually rings hollow, uh, or does not ring hollow, rings very true. And, and again, this is some, this is a way that the book very much like, it does a great job of adapting, or the movie does a great job of adapting, um, adapting the book in that the, uh, the book also like the, the moments of sincerity, of their book are much like this. Uh, uh, what do we have next? I guess we just we basically just have the dream sequence. So yeah, he has this great dream where he is. Uh, we start with uh with Rob Brydon and um Gillian Anderson. Gillian Anderson as as the the widow Wardman Wardman Wardley Wadman the widow Wadman and and Uncle Toby Toby what? Toby all right yeah <laughs> um I I didn't do my reading guys I only got through the first volume of Tristram Shandy. I couldn't get all nine in before we recorded. <laughs> um but yeah, they're doing this take and it's like it's a great lush take. We're back into the movie again, but this time the camera's placed so that you can also see the filmmakers of it and the and the people off screen with boom mics and everything. And it's a great take and everyone applauds and they cut over to Steve Coogan who is upside down in a womb <laughs> model and shrugged into be about the size of a dinner plate. <laughs> And it's a, a callback to earlier in the movie when he has had to pose in that same contraption for like an experimental scene they're going to do in the Tristan <laughs> Shandy movie that we never get seen accomplished. So I I do love that when the movie starts sort of you like you've just seen a sequence where Steve Coogan is like, this is fucking stupid. I have to pose like this. But once you see it, a scene of it within the movie you're watching, 
you know that Steve Coogan did have to go and do <laughs> multiple takes in this contraption that he hated being in. Uh, I also I also love the like the sort of implication for the fake version of this movie where Steve Coogan plays himself as an unborn baby, and then there's like a 16 year gap, and then he <laughs> resumes playing himself as a teenager. Yeah, <laughs> what he says like um uh. Oh, I don't know what year they're gonna have me take over for Tristan. Probably, you know, I could probably play eighteen. <laughs> yeah, no, but I, I think also, uh, I, the fact that his, his, I mean, we're talking about him being a baby in a in a womb. I think the baby is like his his perce- his perceived stardom, and uh, he thinks his career is finally taking off after his you know bad sitcom career, which he's very defensive about. And his his nightmare is not that he will not be the star. It's that Rob will be yeah. the star. It's not that he will fall flat. It's that he will be surpassed by a, a Welshman who does impressions. Uh, and I just... And you know, honestly, I think we all should personally feel that kind of desperate sadness of Steve Coogan at the realization that a Welshman who does impressions has surpassed each and every one of us in their in his career. Yeah, but uh, do we have more to say about the stream, or, or do we talk about the second moment of tenderness? The second moment of tenderness, which is he awakes from the dream and 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 climbs into bed with his yeah with his girlfriend who he has uh, thrown aside earlier because of because of his professional insecurity. Um, yeah, but f- but finally, sort of, I think accepts that he has been usurped and uh, makes love to his wife. That's nice. Yeah, it's really beautiful. I, Steve Coogan, it's, it's Steve great. Coogan, like Steve Coogan, becoming a better person over the course of this movie is like exactly parallel with him being less of a part of the movie. Yes, which is a, agreed. Yeah, which is which um, is a wildly anti-acting stance for a movie in uh, that hires a lot of actors to take. Um. Yeah, I don't know. I I I love. I mean, I love the first twenty-five minutes of this movie. I love the next forty, perhaps more. Um, and does that take us into the third act when we're back in the movie? Yes. They're going to film this birth scene. They've included the reshoot that they need. They've gotten the money to do a big battle sequence. Now that Jillian Anderson is on board. And they're and they've gotten rid of the shoes. They don't need the shoes anymore. <laughs> uh, which is the best cause fucking gag that he's like been just like needling people to get these shoes where he can be taller than Rob Brighton and then Oh, these are the shoes like we talked it out. We kind of don't need them, actually. I worked all night on these. <laughs> and like in any, in, well, sorry. In, like... in any other movie, this would be like the climactic, like triumphant moment where, like you know, like like <laughs> like you know, like the 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 business, you know, like every you know Disney movie where like the the business obsessed dad like finally realizes like oh it's family that's important and like he's like you know what no assistant I won't be going to that meeting after all. But <laughs> yeah, it's like you know like the movie is really just like oh well for in a lot of ways it's too little too late. Yeah, you have totally, like, made a big trouble for everyone else. <laughs> it's nice that you've grown, but... <laughs> that should be the coda in those Disney movies when the dad is like, I am going to make my son's baseball game, where, like, he gets fucking fired and the family is, like, out on the street. Uh, um, but yeah, so we we get the the, the redo of, of the birth scene. Um... And what what do you make of of this rewrite in which Steve is is back in and Walter is back in for fifteen seconds and then faints? Well, I think it's in wanting to have 
a piece of art or like a representation he can cling to that proves that he's a good father and that he's not that he's not Tristram Shandy's father and that there is, you know, he wants to, which is sort of a classic ego problem of actors, you know, of why. Uh, it, it's just Ben Affleck. Just he, Ben Affleck, what? he only wants to play cool guys in movies because he's desperate to be a cool guy. Yeah, or like um, how uh, during Creed, Stallone like didn't want his character to have cancer <laughs> because that would make him seem weak. That's so fucking funny. He was like, like uh, maybe like my neighbor can have cancer instead, and it's like no, you need to be the one who has cancer. All right, this all right, all right but let's have let's have good. a let's have a climactic sequence where I where I get back in the ring and I fight my cancer cells. <laughs> I mean, almost. You know, like that's the thing about fucking. Uh, sorry, quick Stallone thing. Uh, do you know the reason why he has a fucked up lip? Uh it's because of his. It's because of Dan forceps. Moran's forceps. Forceps. It's... Yes. <laughs> They pinched a nerve <laughs> when he was being born. <laughs> oh man! I thank thank God for Phil for Stallone that they didn't grab him at the hip. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I'm gonna say it. I don't think Sylvester Stallone would have the same kind of career if he were circumcised. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah. Um, it is. It's important to note that this like this rewrite is is the product of. Of again of of ego and and the desire to be seen well, but I think it's also important to note that the rewritten Walter doesn't take an active role in um in his son's birth. It is simply that he cares enough to faint, and that like that is his big emotional moment is the the depiction of not a man doing well but just doing well enough to care it's like that. I don't know. That is sort of that is that is what the film sees as like the pinnacle of dadhood is is caring. At the same time, I think the scene also represents like the film's like sort of subtextual thesis on like what kind of adaptation you should do. Like what is a good kind of adaptation? Um, You know, I think it is also talking about like how, you know, um, it's fundamentally saying like, you know, a, a story can survive. Uh, like change like a couple minor changes like you don't have you don't have to be married to exactly what happens in the book i agree you know so it's it's nice when, um, a, when a movie takes time out of the movie to justify its own artistic choices well i i mean i get but i think that's kind of what makes this film so exciting for me is that it's both a faithful adaptation of the novel and pushing it in new directions and uh justifying actively those choices to deviate i don't know we can get back to it at the very end um do we have any more thoughts on on the redone birth sequence or do we break the seventh wall we break the seventh wall i say we cut to the screening room all of where they are watching the movie that we have also just been watching (laughs) they are audience members alongside us for this whole like tender saga we've been taken in of steve coogan behind the scenes naomi harris is with them and she was a character the whole time and it's like so is his um so is uh Kelly, Mc- Kelly uh, McDonald. She's not it... his girlfriend. She just like gets up and walks past him. <laughs> when the movie's done, she's like, that was a good take. Just leaves. <laughs> um, I don't know. Uh, what, what are your impressions of this? Because I, I have a couple of thoughts about it, and I am curious to, if you think this this choice is. You know, Will, early you talked about this as a movie of being where it's taking its cake and eating it. And I think this is the scene where the movie takes one bite too many i am so affected by 
Steve Coogan's behind the scene work, this great thesis it's putting together on masculinity and like how you find like representations of who it is you want to be and show to the world and how that relates to just your private moments and, and, and like authenticity. And I think it kind of reduces and undercuts itself where all these beats that we've been taken in with are just as phony as the, as the nesting egg that came before it, you know, it, it, it diminishes the movie in my opinion. I think, I think I, but I can see the Drickies winding no, up. I, no, I, no, I, 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 I agree. Doesn't. I think, I think, um, I just, I'm so fond of this movie. I almost want to say that the, uh, you know, in order to truly be an adaptation, like a good ad- adaptation of the book, it has to also kind of fuck up having, like, you know, fuck up having a con- like a, a consistent themes too. So you know, truly be about someone failing fail- to write their yeah. memoir. Yeah. Frank, I'm I am in complete agreement with you. I think it's too clever by half. I don't see why it's here except to cynically undercut. And and I guess the one, if you want to say that the sort of the one redemption of this scene is to see the post credits friendship between Rob Brighton and Steve Coogan as they riff about their performances in the film, and you finally see that warmth between them, but. No, it, it does it does kind of reduce all of the warmth that it engenders to something that is false. And I don't love that at all. I don't like it. But at the same time, they can't it... have the very great scene afterward where everyone talks about like, well, how the fuck do we end this? If like like <laughs> if it came to a neat ending first, then like it just wouldn't work. And I guess I guess that is that's the coda is you know, end for, for back a, you in know. the novel but i think you can't you can't go back once you've gone this far out you know once you've once you've revealed how many layers of artifice you're dealing in you can't i i am not moved getting pulled in for the coda inside the novel oh really I'm supposed to sort of feel at that time it doesn't it didn't land for me you know i actually kind of really lose lost me in the last four minutes alone you know interesting interesting because like i i don't love the screening room but I actually went to throwing us back in the novel and having Stephen Fry sort of again. Well, what did it all mean? No one knows. It's it's all cock and bull. No, it, it, nothing means anything. Everything means nothing. A, a, a cock and bull. Nothing means anything. Yes, a cock and bull story, Caleb. But it's also uh, and one of the best of its kind. You know, like no no movie no like no story can truly be about anything. But like you you can still try. Yeah, and and I I think so. A part of me says that you know how dare you once again dehumanize Steve Steve Coogan after spending an hour building him into a decent person. Um, but then we have Stephen Fry explaining to uh, that maybe he is still decent. You know, uh, you don't know, and I don't know, and and maybe that decency was always false and that's okay and there's there's beauty everywhere we we just have to keep looking yeah i think i I think if they had left Uh, if they had left the arc so linear as um steve coogan becomes a better person through the course of the movie that would kind of undercut what the book is about which is not that like people are more complex you know like it's not like oh you know like it's like don't judge a book by its cover read the first page at first like uh you know like people not necessarily that that um people are shallow or anything like that but like oh they're deep deep down they're good and i think the movie and the book are fundamentally about like it's it's not quite so simple but like michael winterbottom has made a very like beautiful good movie and i kind of wish he would just sort of own that in the end instead of trying to (laughs) 
distance himself from it, you know? Like, why not take credit for a, a great movie, I, I guess, you know? I think it's all there, and, and, I, and I, I don't think he gains enough by having, like, one last nod to the structure of the novel and then, then he loses by, by undercutting what he's just spent the last 40 minutes on. Do you want to do game show and then wrap up? Uh, yeah, I think I'll be on. Let's do the game, uh, game show. show and then uh, the final verdict. This game show is called Good Tomatoes and Rotten Reads. Uh, what I have here <laughs> is a list of quotes I've taken out of context from the user reviews on Rotten Tomatoes of Tristram Shandy, A Cock and Bull Story, directed <laughs> by Michael Winterbottom, and quotes I've taken from out of context out quotes I've taken out of context from the Goodreads reviews of The Life and Opinions of Tristram Shanty okay. Gentleman. And I will go back and forth and basically you will have to guess correctly whether the quote comes from a Rotten Tomatoes review of the movie or a Goodreads review of the book. And we will total up who gets the most points at the end. And I do have a tie-breaking Ooh, okay. round that we can do. Um, I, well. I'm just going to really take quake this, uh, take this petard of mine and set it down over here and just say that, like, I think I'm going to fucking nail this. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just do some quick foreshadowing here. <laughs> uh, I have no confidence whatsoever. Let's go. Okay. Um, should we go by who got pulled out by the forceps first? <laughs> start with Will. Absolutely. Okay, Will. Maddie writes, quote, I can't believe I actually finished this. Goodreads or Rotten Tomatoes? Now the question is, I guess you were complaining that director was too clever by half. Um, because this, my gut says Goodreads, just because the book is several hundred pages and the movie is only like 90 minutes. But I feel like you're trying to be, you're trying to trick me. So I'm going to say Rotten Tomatoes. Incorrect. Fuck. It is from Goodreads. I should have gone with my gut. <laughs> Damn it! I, I should have expected that you've developed an immunity to iocane powder. Hey, Will. <laughs> it's ego that mucks up the works. <laughs> I feel like that's the moral of this of this story. Is is really everything is an adaptation of Tristram Shandy. You literally can't not adapt Tristram Shandy. <laughs> All right, Caleb, are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, so I'll say that some of these reviews explicitly say like movie or book, or they say reading or watching, and so I will just say blank. To cover up like a, a spoiler word like that, okay. And are you gonna put okay, it out uh, in post? So it. Uh, so yep. It... Exactly. <laughs> um, okay. So Joel B writes, "I award this blank five stars for wit and inventiveness. I deduct one star for the obscure vocabulary and self-satisfaction. That still leaves four stars." Caleb, is that <laughs> Goodreads or Rotten Tomatoes? <laughs> Ah! <laughs> uh, wow. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna take a guess. I'm I'm gonna say Joel B is an elderly gentleman who was upset that Steve Coogan said some very naughty words, and I'm gonna say that this is Rotten Tomatoes. Incorrect. That is also Goodreads. <laughs> God I, I damn it! Say, I do. I do love this guy's style of reviewing, where it's like that insane <laughs> tip, where you put five one dollar bills on the table and then take one away every time yeah. the waiter fucks up. <laughs> God. If anyone, oh, that's, that's truly the worst people. 
I don't know. At the same time, fundamentally, it is saying that like uh, all books are are at at their heart five stars, and that you know they can only <laughs> just by avoiding a few simple mistakes, they can all reach that level. Well, Phil D writes self indulgent rubbish. Oh, that's <laughs> that's Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> Correct. That is Rotten Tomatoes. The will is one point. All right, Caleb. Orlock W writes. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> Orlock. Uh, the, the the critic's name is Orlock W. The username. <laughs> Hell yeah! Um, they also they also have a typo in their review, so I'm just going to just try to read it phonetically. <laughs> I mean, I think to do this I'm character excited. justice, to do this person justice, you have to do like a goblin voice. <laughs> okay, Orlock W. How is this for a goblin? It's great. Let's do it. Makia funny ado about nothing and everything. Smart arsed! Exclamation point, exclamation point. Caleb, is that Rotten Tomatoes or Goodreads? Goblins don't have access to multimedia devices, so I'm going to say that's Goodreads. Incorrect. Or W is reviewing that on Rotten Tomatoes. No! How did, how did the I, goblin I get a DVD? No, no, every... No, um, he was the, the the style of the review was too illiterate to ever ma- ever make it on good. <laughs> yeah. Um. Okay. Uh. Will mm-hmm. Stella D writes, "Quote: Your mileage may vary according to your taste in 18th century literature." Dot dot dot. I enjoyed it very much, though it's messy and not everything works. Goodreads or Rotten Tomatoes? You know, I'm gonna say I'm gonna say Goodreads. Incorrect. It is Rotten Tomatoes. All right, God. so uh, the score is one to zero on question <sighs> five. <laughs> Just cut out all the questions we get wrong. All right, Caleb. I'm ready. John A. writes, quote, A wonderfully entertaining blank, one that all wannabe memorialists, novelists, historians, and biographers should blank carefully. Caleb, is that Goodreads or Rotten Tomatoes? It's got to be Goodreads. If it's about that history. That is correct. It's Fucking Goodreads. eat my shorts, William. All right, you're tied at one point. Fuck you. Much, right. much, like, <laughs> much like life, it does, Caleb, it, you know, it does take Caleb a while to catch up to me, but he will never surpass <laughs> me. Will. Benjamin H. writes, quote, The way we view faces will never be the same again. Is that Goodreads or Rotten Tomatoes? What the fuck? Um, <laughs> oh, man. Is that Rotten Tomatoes? That is Goodreads, unfortunately. All right. Caleb. Jonathan S. writes, quote, It's one big meta in-joke. Goodreads or Rotten Tomatoes? Uh, that has to be about the structure of the film, so I'm going to say that's that's Rotten Tomatoes. That is correct. That's Rotten Tomatoes. Caleb is now taking the lead with oh a second God. point. All right. Will. Cat R writes, This bored the shit out of me. <laughs> Two stars. Um, I'm going to say, I'm going to say Goodreads. That is Rotten Tomatoes. Unfortunately. Taking L. It's, that review is in the film. Wait, really? Dude, well, that's, that's what the screenwriter says when that's... they get Gillian Anderson. Two stars, yeah. That's what the review will be. (laughs) All right, Caleb. 
Ready. David S. writes, Pretentious, self-indulgent, and nonsensical. Very jolly school, with humor to match. Is that Rotten Tomatoes or Goodreads? Very jolly school. That is... With humor to match. Hmm. Uh, The school indicates the novel, because no one would ever screen this film to teenagers. Um, So, uh... But the pretentiousness suggests someone who watched the film and didn't like this sort of self-referential, self-referential film within a film within a film structure. But I'm going to lean Goodreads. Incorrect. It is Rotten Tomatoes. Damn. I was going to say, I was going to say, damn, that guy sounds like a British pervert. It's got to be Goodreads. <laughs> Will, your quote. Chris D. writes, I can honestly say after blank thousands of blank that I have never been so moved to tears of sheer and utter boredom. <laughs> I can only sit back in wonderment of why so many people rave over this garbage. I M O. It must be the Emperor's clothes effect. Rotten Tomatoes are Goodreads. I want to say Goodreads, and I'm shooting. Incorrect. From the that is Rotten Tomatoes. God damn. What is the thousands of what? Yeah. What? What? what what's what the thousands of blank? Oh, let's see. I can honestly say, after watching thousands of movies. Okay. Oh, I was ah, you're right. Be... People on Goodreads don't feel the need to say I've read ten thousand books. Oh, I assumed it would be like after a th- like fifteen hundred pages, pages of this dribble. Yeah. yeah, is what I assumed it was. All right, Caleb, your final question. I'm ready. Andrea writes, "Why white male privilege?" <laughs> Goodreads <laughs> or Rod Tomatoes? Is that Y W H Y? This is Y W H Y. White male privilege. <laughs> Oh, man. There's a little more context, but that's all you're getting for this round. <laughs> um, that's got to be about... about it's, that's about the Cougs. I'm going to say Rotten Tomatoes. Incorrect. That is good. Roots. I fucking knew it. It's one of those YA people. It's one of those YA... like, all, like a, The only diversity that matters is among YA authors. All right, so technically, Caleb is in the lead with two points to Will's one. Um... So I'm gonna do <laughs> do I'm gonna do one final round. Okay. Okay. So Will Banked W writes. Wait, sorry. His name is Banked. B E N G T. Oh, okay. W. Den passive aggressive dynamakin blank ars fargling ok funkar bra harsom i blank. Han dock inte riktig skaka av mig kanslan att bli blast pa en story i Tristram Shandy. Is that a Rotten Tomatoes or a Goodreads review? I'm going to say Goodreads. I'm sorry, it's Rotten Tomatoes. Baked W was reviewing the passive-aggressive dynamakin between Coogan and Bryden. Was that was that right. was that German or 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 a stroke? I think it's I think it's Swedish. I could be wrong. It has like it has the umlauts and I don't know. But Caleb, don't worry. It's your turn now. Uwts writes, "Teir loko kalsle jotka minestite katsoa taumen hauksojen patkian takia el kanata exclamation point oli parjon honoumpi milta." Vaikuti. Caleb, is that Rotten Tomatoes or Goodreads? Ah, <laughs> uh, 
you know, I didn't hear any Coogans or Brightons or Winter Bottoms or anything like that. So I'm going to say Goodreads and clinch my yeah, victory. Yeah, but unfortunately, that is also Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> <laughs> However, you have finished ahead with two points to Will's one, <laughs> a total of three how, points. How many questions did you ask? I think In it was total? like at least 12. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, um, I had to I had to take yeah. a back seat in this competition because I'm trying to spend more time with my son. <laughs> uh, okay, so I think it's time to wrap it up. We we do need to come to a verdict. Uh, Will, you're our guest. I'm going to start with you. Is Tristram Shandy a cock and bull story? Is it a rat adaptation? Is it a bad adaptation? Does it make you feel a little sad adaptation? Uh, maybe a little mad adaptation. You know, oh uh, God, how are you feeling? Options. Oh, By I... the new category, I propose of glad adaptation, <laughs> where you're glad it's here, even if it's not rad. Oh, okay. So, and then um, eventually we're going to feel like a, it could be a adaptation. I feel like, you know, it's, this podcast isn't complete unless there is a, there is a. The adaptation a... is going to be, yeah. <laughs> huge. That might be this one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I would say this is this is a rad adaptation. This is I would go so far as to say this is probably the best adaptation of a novel I've ever seen. Ooh, some high praise, indeed. I mean, that could go in your Goodreads review <laughs> or your Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, I would. I mean, is this is this the best movie I've ever seen? No, I definitely seen better movies, but I think this might be like the best possible movie to come out of this book. Frank Myers. So, as I've mentioned, the movie kind of loses me in the last truly three minutes of it and kind of undercuts what it's been doing ahead. However, I'm still going to say Radaptation. It is pretty moving in a lot of stretches of it. It is unbelievably clever. Even with its weird Russian nesting doll story structure, it's actually pretty easy to follow even every time it pulls the rug out from under you. And it's a very funny movie. This is a rad adaptation. I would sure. say, I would say, but you know, much like the 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 Goodreads reviewer or whoever, you should just take one letter away for the one mistake it made. That's true. So it's a <laughs> redapt, redaptio. It's a redaptio. Uh, no, I I agree with both of you. I think this is absolutely a rad adaptation. Uh, the structure of it is so monstrously clever, and it's I mean, it is, it is both original but also a beautiful interpretation of the structure of the novel um which everyone in in the film acknowledges is absolutely unfilmable uh i also think this is i think this is the best steve coogan performance um and i think we i think sort of self-portrayal is often not taken very seriously as far as performance goes but i do think this is a, a, just a stellar performance in which he is both the meanest bastard on the planet and also has moments of real tenderness. Steve Coogan's great. I mean, great. the man, the man, the man dropped a piping hot chestnut down his pants. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you have to respect that kind of dedication. No, I think this is, uh, I, this is, it's not, I won't go so far as will and say, this is the best adaptation I've ever seen, but I think it's, I think it's pretty stunning. I like this movie a lot. Great. Three zero adaptation. Go watch it. Nice. It's unanimous. All, all, uh, every, every podcast listener who has not seen this movie by the time, by the release of the episode will be shot. Yeah, all, all two of them. <laughs> okay. You hear, the, um, you hear that Frank's dad and my dad watch this movie. 
I don't know if my dad is going to listen to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my dad is... Uh, and when we were talking about the Disney movie trope, my dad always takes the meeting. He never he, he <laughs> skips the ball game. Yeah, and but um, but if if you know in a really tender moment, if your dad said, "Frank, I listened to your podcast," wouldn't that just like cure all of like the past like disappointments? Yeah, but again, I don't even think he would like tap out of a Zoom call. To listen <laughs> to okay. Uh, Will, do you have anything you'd like to plug or let us let folks know where they can find you? Um, yeah, uh, you can, uh, you can see my work around, like, various emergency rooms across Los Angeles. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I realized I had no idea what your job was for this whole conversation. <laughs> uh, yeah, alright, so we're gonna play a quick game show, actually, here between you and Caleb. Uh, is that, uh, uh, EMT or Serial Killer? You're an EMT? That's fucking dope. Yeah, thank you. Um. Are you staying safe? Yes. Uh, you know, they give us, they give us plenty of, uh of equipment and i get screened for covid multiple times a day so there is just yeah it's fine i haven't you know i'm the one member of my family who hasn't fucking caught covid yet i haven't wait really wait yeah i was gonna say caleb of you <laughs> no i haven't oh well mazel tov. i had i had one scare on air with frank that's 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 the kind of that's the kind of high emotional like high high emotional intensity moments you can only get on a podcast baby. <laughs> uh i played it so fucking calm <laughs> But Will, you have uh, you've been published. Where have you been published? Where can oh, people find your work? Don't fucking read anything that has been published of mine, unless you want to read like a weird poem that was published in fucking El Salvador. Yeah, um, that's cool. <laughs> I mean, I guess fucking you find it, loser. Um, I'm, not <laughs> I'm not gonna help you. Uh, <laughs> All right. I don't know. I'm I, I'm working on a I'm working on a, a piece about medicine and socialism for the DSA. That should go out in their quarterly publication sometime in March, assuming I ever get around to it. But it's fucking well, this isn't going to go up. Okay, we're going to cut some stuff out. This isn't going to go up for another couple of months. So okay, perfect. So plug it. Oh, I mean, I don't know what it's called yet, but keep an eye just, out for it, the DSA. Uh, like I think it's the Thorn, um, you know, New York, and it might be there. Great. Thank you uh, so much for coming on podcast. Thank you, Will. Sorry, I don't have more podcasts to plug. I would, I would love it if, uh, you know, if I was, if it was just like one of those podcast pyramid schemers who just like you, just you're moved. too busy saving lives <laughs> to just fill your days with the innate bullshit of. <laughs> I think this is actually um, just as important of a public service. <laughs> I mean, yeah. honestly, given that half my job is literally just like taking patients from one hospital to another because it's in their insurance network, you might be, you might not be wrong. You should, you should launch a true crime podcast about your grandfather, though. That really <laughs> is uh, quite ripe. But that's the thing is like, that I feel like he was too inept yeah. to be interested. Uh, <laughs> like he's like, it sounds like he failed upward though, sort of, right? <laughs> no, he kind of failed downward. <laughs> Darn! <laughs> I, w- I would not say I would not say that my grandfather re- led a good life. No, he did marry like eight people. Um, That's nice. Should we wrap it up? Wait, what? How many people? I think so. <laughs> Wait, uh, I think he, he married like eight, eight, eight people. Not at the not same at time. God, I wish we could have him as a guest. <laughs> <laughs> we could have him as a guest. <laughs>